Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Welcome to the show. This is Stephen Moe. It's an exciting week as the Social Enterprise World Forum is kicking off here in Christchurch, New Zealand. So it's appropriate that we have as our guest on this episode, the mayor of Christchurch, Leanne Dalzell. Here is an extract from the interview with her. As a kid, I grew up in an environment where you would not leave rubbish on the ground. You would pick it up. And that's the way we were. But that seems to have been lost in the idea that we pay rates. And that means that's somebody else. It's somebody else's job. And for me, resilience is about seeing it not as somebody else's job, but as seeing it as our collective responsibility to look out for each other. I really enjoyed chatting with Leanne about her life and what purpose means to her. Now, the beauty of having your own podcast is that you can decide who your guests are. So next week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different and talking with a 10-year-old about what life is like when you've just turned 10, and in particular, what she thinks adults can learn from kids. And then after that, we're going to be talking with Mark Ambundo, who's from Kenya and is now living here in Christchurch, and he has some really good observations about Western culture. The easiest way to ensure you won't miss the episodes coming up is to subscribe to this podcast. For now, let's dive straight into the interview with Leanne. All right, so it's great to be able to welcome Leanne Dalzell, the Christchurch mayor today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Now, on this uh, show, what we do is we talk a lot about purpose and impact, um, and I'm really interested in Christchurch and your views about where we're at and where we're going to be going. But before we get into those sorts of topics, I'd like to start right at the beginning, just going back, learning a bit more about your own life, um, where you're from. This is where I'm from. I was born in Christchurch uh, in 1960, so the end of the baby, baby booming years. And uh, I, I grew up in a place called uh, Papanui, and uh, I uh, was born into a Catholic family, so I've got three brothers and three sisters. Mm-hmm. Lived a pretty normal life growing up. Um, you know, we had a great life, actually. We made our own fun. It was before television sets were... You know, in our homes, uh, I don't think television started till... Well, it must have started soon after I was born, but I wasn't aware of mm. people having television sets for a long time. So and what did you do for fun with your Well, we siblings? made our own fun. I mean, you didn't need... I mean, I'm, I'm gobsmacked these days when, you know, people have to buy their kids' costumes and things like this. We, you know, a towel wrapped around your neck was a cape, and that could make you a superhero overnight. And of course, we d- we just made our own fun. We played outside, played on the street when Dad wasn't looking, and and but there were always parks. You know, we'd jump on our bikes. There were seven of us, and we'd just jump on our bikes and go anywhere. It was a good life, actually. Mm. So it's happy memories of childhood. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, is that you know, life was a lot simpler then, and we learned earlier on that you know, if you wanted to, you know, sort of earn things and you it was very much about earning things I remember I wanted ice skates uh, when I was probably in my early teens and uh, so so I got a job after school and I, I saved up I was getting 40 cents an hour and I saved up and I bought a pair of boots now they meant more to me than a gift would have meant I'd earned them 
And what were your parents involved in? Well, uh, mum was a uh, stay-at-home until my youngest sister was four years old, and then she went back to the workforce, which coincided with dad, dad's firm relocating to another city, and so he wasn't willing to relocate um, the family. And so he simply, well, him and, him and mum swapped roles when my youngest sister was four, which is actually quite unusual for that generation. I think they were very much pioneers in that regard. But mum was a qualified pharmacist, so it wasn't as if she wasn't able to sort of uh, foot it in terms of earnings with my father, who was an accountant for a firm, but, but not a chartered accountant. He hadn't been to university. In fact, I remember saying to my grandmother, did she have any regrets? You know, And she said one was not being able to afford to send dad to to university and um, that was a real regret in her life so we we grew up in an environment where we were all encouraged to do well and I think probably because of mum's background and dad's you know real feeling that he should have gone to university there was an expectation that all the kids would and in fact all of us did except for two and uh, five of us have got university qualifications. The other two are in IT and and swear that they don't need a university qualification to do the work that they do. (laughs) So that background kind of prepared you for going to university, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. But there was an expectation. Mm. So there was no point in my life growing up that I didn't expect to go to university when I was old enough to think about that. I think I did have an ambition to be an airline hostess when I was about um, seven or eight, but that was probably to do with the you know, the, the, the fascination of planes and, mm. um, yeah, just seeing them stay up in the air and thinking mm. that this would be an opportunity to travel the world. Mm. And when you went to university, did you know what topic you would study or was it No, a, a no. I, when I left school, um, my school closed before I'd completed school, so at the end of our sixth form, year 12, I think they'd call it these days, the school closed down, Catholic school, and my parents enrolled me in another school, um, Girls High, and I just couldn't be bothered really making a whole lot of new friends. None of my friends were going there, so I simply, well, actually, mum, mum encouraged me. She said, why don't, you, why don't you go and work for a year? And I said, but that will, you know, how will I go to university? Well, I had enough points through. Uh, I had university entrance points by then, so I, I didn't have to do a seven-form year. I asked her whether that would count against me, and she said, no, you've got, you're qualified to go to university, so go and work for a year. And then she took a clipping out of the paper and said, this is a job your auntie used to do down in Dunedin, and it was a stamping and registration <laughs> clerk's role in a law firm. Of course, the, the job doesn't exist anymore. I applied for the job at Wynne Williams & Co, and I got the job, and, mm. and then I thought, I could do law. I could be a lawyer, and that's actually literally how I came to decide what my future might be. Wow, so it was that experience in, in the, the stamping section now (laughs) well no it was like as soon as I um, considered applying for the job Mm. I thought no one's no one's mentioned law to me my mother had gone through every health professional job she could think of and I had no interest in it I had no real passion for science and maths I did have a passion for English and language Mm. yeah because her background as a pharmacist that would have been natural Mm. wouldn't it to kind of say well yeah. Health profession. Yeah, yeah. That, that's where that was coming from. Yeah. But um, no, it was, uh, 
yeah, so that's that's how it was. And I think, you know, there are a lot of influences around people around the choices that they make. But so there were a lot of lawyer television programs on by the time I got to my late teens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I know that the paper chase was on at or around that time. And uh, that had that wonderful professor who used to stand at the at the front of the lecture theatre in America saying, you know, you come in here with a mind full of mush and you leave here <laughs> thinking like a lawyer. And I thought, I'd like to think like a lawyer. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so that was right here at Canterbury University yes, you went? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So just describe what, what it was like um, to be a, a student at that time. You know, what, what were your, I guess, your hopes or your dreams as a, what, you had been 18, 19 yeah, Something probably like probably seventeen was I seventeen or eight, seventeen or eighteen when I enrolled, and yeah, probably seventeen. But uh, my my birthday's mid year, so I would have started when I was seventeen, turned eighteen during the course of the year. But anyway, I um, probably wasn't a very good student. So, and the reason for that was that I was because I'd worked for a year and had you know independent income, and I'd moved into a flat and really yeah was kind of living a bit of a social life at the time yeah we we just had a lot of fun in that year that I took off in between mm. and so I didn't really settle into university life mm. uh, to start with so it gave you a different perspective it sounds like well except we it probably was a, I was probably a little bit irresponsible if we're going to sort of be honest about it and so I didn't do very well I didn't do at all well in my first year um, and that's when I thought, well, I'd better knuckle down mm. and just get this degree out of the way, which is what I did. Mm. And then um, what happened next? Where did you go to? Or? Well, while I was, uh, well, uh, while I was um, working, I picked up an after-hours job at the hospital. And it was a, kind of a cleaning job um, that I would go to after work. And then, of course, when I went to university, I, I held on to that job. So I was always earning an income while I was at university. And, you know, and back in the day, it was a good income. We were all members of the union. Uh, we all got award wages. There was very little difference for being under 20 and over 20. I think it was, you know, sort of might have been a 20% margin in, in terms of the pay. It was uh, time and a half for three hours on the Saturday and double time for the rest of the weekend. Mm. By the time I got to weekend work, I was almost earning a full-time pay with doing 16 hours work. Mm. So, Mm. you know, I was really quite well off financially, which did give me the security that I needed to to put myself through university Mm. at the time. But anyway, it was a a good... uh, that, that, That probably influenced me the most because getting involved in the union meant that I got involved in issues in the workplace and then I got elected as a delegate for the group that I was working for and then I got elected to the union executive and then when I finished my degree they offered me a job. So that sort of changed my direction. Mm. And by then I didn't really fancy going into the legal profession. I, I, I hadn't I hadn't kind of worked out at the beginning what part of law I was interested in. So mm. I guess that we'd just I'd just be watching what was on television. I could imagine, you know, standing up in front of a jury and pleading the case of some poor innocent person. But actually it's not like that. Mm. Um, that happens from time to time, but that is 
it's quite rare. Mm. There's a lot of very boring, <laughs> <laughs> laborious kind of work. Yeah. And, and family law did not appeal to me at all because it was, to me, it was just too hard being involved at that critical point in a relationship breakdown, mm. um, just too hard. So I, I wasn't attracted to any particular element of the law, but industrial law there, now that was interesting and exciting and took me in a different direction. And it sounds like it, it had practical resonance or meaning for you because you'd been working. And yeah. You kind of saw the benefits of it. Yeah, no, and it was it was good. You know, back in the day, you know, union membership was 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 pretty much mandatory. Mm. There was a conscience provision for some people can't belong to a union due to their, you know, deeply held personal um, convictions, re- religious beliefs. You know, so we we had a um, a law that allowed for that, but but generally everyone was in, and that meant everyone paid their way, which meant that the unions were much more effective than they are today, mm. simply because there was no no disadvantage in being a member. Nowadays, you can see, you know, examples where union members who raise issues are then gradually picked off. And of mm. course, if you've got a workforce that's largely ununionized, uh, then that can actually lead to, you know, quite an unfair situation. People feeling under pressure, and mm. you know, it's it's not a good environment for people who are in 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 jobs that are very dependent on a large corporate entity actually caring about their Mm. individual lives. Mm. (laughs) And it sounds like you were able to use your training as a lawyer and bring it to this role. Mm. And and it must have felt quite satisfying, I'm I'm guessing here, but you can clarify, was it satisfying to be actually seeing people benefit from the job that you were doing? Yeah, I I did enjoy that side of it. Mm. And I always tried to find a settlement, you know, like I I never took a hard line position mm. and I think when, when I left the union movement I had people from both the union side and the employers association at the time, you know, making quite uh, positive comments about how I was good to work with and, you know, back in the day because the unions themselves had a stake in the industry, it meant that you weren't you weren't just representing people because they turned up and asked you to represent them as you would for a lawyer you know if a lawyer is approached they represent the person regardless and the first question that they ask is not did you do it <laughs> that's the last question they never ask that question as a lawyer mm-hmm. because you are there to represent your client whereas if you're a union official the first question you ask is well did you steal that item mm. If the answer is, yeah, but they can't prove it, then it's there's the door mm. because I represent everyone else in the workforce mm. and there's nothing to defend when somebody is ripping off their employer. Mm. So, so, so there's a level of integrity there. there. There is a, but it's a commitment to the industry. Mm. Actually, the industry is not advantaged at all by anyone who kind of rips off their employer and then expects to get away with it because the employer can't prove it. Mm. Whereas in a legal situation, in a lawyer's situation, someone walks in the door, you don't say, did you steal that item? Mm. You say, give me your version of events. <laughs> mm. So th- do you think that's what, when people would comment that you were easy to deal with or good to deal with, was that because you were able to wear the hats of both sides? And Well, it, it wasn't so much that. It, it was the industry mm. is made up of employers and workers. So because it's you're representing in that sense, 
the, the, the industry mm. and the context of the individual employee, you have to work with the other side. Mm. And that means that you've got to be able to be trusted. So, so I, I always held that as quite an important part of what we did mm. um, in the union movement at the time. And what were some of the key things that you learned through that experience? Because that was dealing with people every day, wasn't it? Uh, I, I always used to research things, but I always remember going to a, a course that actually one of the university lecturers put on for the local unions. And it was based on a book called Getting to Yes. And it was a negotiating style. And it asked people when they were negotiating to put themselves on the other side of the negotiating table to see if they could understand and then reflect back Mm. on that. And I remember straight after I'd done the course, uh, I, I had a case, you know, that, and I said to this young woman, I said, D- do you want your job back? I mean, I'll tell you this, this quick story, mm. but basically she had been late to work a couple of times mm. the, and the boss ran a small takeaways, you know, small business mm. right in the heart of Christchurch, um, Manchester Street, I think it was, and he'd said to her this Friday she'd been late, he said, I can't open the shop on time for a busy lunch trade if you're late. You know, if you're late again, you've already been late a couple of times, you know, if you're late again, I'm going to have to let you go. I can't afford for you to be late. She missed the bus the following Monday, which is the first day after he'd given her a very explicit warning. Now, the union organiser that had been given the job of seeing the employer, and he was quite anti-union, he just didn't like the idea of unions. He's um, from a European country. And he, he, you know, he just, he had a thing about it. And she had basically said he hadn't put the warning in writing, so therefore he couldn't, he couldn't sack her because he hadn't given that final warning in writing. Well, that's a very literal interpretation of the rules. So I went along and I said to, I said to this young woman, we had a personal grievance hearing, and I said to this young woman, I said, look, the Employers Association are going to say the worst thing since iceberg. They're going to say this is terrible, she's treated them badly, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you missed your bus. So, but we're going to have to acknowledge that that was straight after you'd been given a clear and explicit warning. You know, and I said, hey, we may not be able to get your job back, but is that what you want? And she said, yes, I want my job back. I want to go overseas. I love working there. I love the guy. And I really feel like I've let him down, but I didn't. I didn't mean to, you know, it was just, mm. it happened. Anyway, so we went in there. Sure enough, he, the, the Employers Association did this great big long spiel about how dreadful she was and terrible she was, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Oh, no, no, it was me first. So I started off by saying, look, we totally understand where the employer's coming from. So I just did that whole thing straight from the book. I, I can't imagine how you felt that Monday when she was late, mm. after you had said to her on Friday, this is it, I can't have this happen anymore, you know. I said, and she felt awful too because she loved working for you. And really what she's asked me to say to you is that she's really sorry, but she'd really like her job back. Anyway, so then it went over to the employer side and he, the Employers Association advocate, and I was watching the employer and he just kept looking at this young woman and looking at me and, and he wasn't listening to what his advocate was saying. 
and his advocate went on about how terrible she was and how she'd ignored him and blah, 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 and how she was late and how mm. he couldn't run his business and everything like that. And then he turned around to his client and said, would you like to add something? And he said, she said she likes working for me. <laughs> I think I'll give her a job back. <laughs> and everyone was just looked at each other and said, we, nobody knew what to do. Yeah. So we had an adjournment. <laughs> And so I, that was a good outcome. Yeah, it was a really, it was a really good outcome. But what yeah. it proved is yeah. that actually if you do put yourself mm. in the shoes of others and if you acknowledge how they're feeling, mm. then actually that is a good outcome. Mm. It's a win-win. Mm. You know, she didn't get paid for the time she had off, so she gave up something mm. um, which cost her. But he, he got what he wanted was an employer that, employee that was actually devoted to him and the job and, you know, he was going to see it through till when she went overseas. Mm. So, you know, I mean, it was a really good experience, but that, I guess, guided me a lot in what I did in that area. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the next stage of your career and, and what you've done, because mm. um, you've got all these different skills of dealing in the union context. And um, I really like that example because it just shows the importance of listening actively listening and then you know that whole concept of reflecting back what mm. I hear you're saying is this and I think that's a skill that has to be developed isn't it it's not mm. a natural thing but maybe just guide us through how did you diverge into politics because that's well, next on yeah, your no, well, next this, on your road isn't this it this was a bit sudden really because it wasn't expected I always had the ambition of um, being the head of the Federation of Labour actually back in the day um, now the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions and so our union was affiliated to the Labour Party and so I became a member of the Labour Party and I wasn't really focused on the political side. I used to go to the electric committee meetings but I wasn't really significantly involved. Some of our organisers were very much involved in the Labour Party. I was more interested in the industrial wing. So I, I got elected to the National Council of Federation of Labour when I was about 25 years old. You know, so that was that experience. But then, then there was the 1990 general election, and we were coming up to that, and must have been about, well, it was only eight or nine weeks before the general election, and Mike Moore took over the leadership from Geoffrey Palmer. He became the Prime Minister with about, as I say, eight or nine weeks to go. And Geoffrey Palmer then announced that he wasn't going to run again, which is like eight or nine weeks before a general election, right. where he's already been selected, where the billboards are already up. So they called for nominations for Christchurch Central, and uh, I got a phone call from the electorate secretary to Geoffrey Palmer and she said are you going to nominate and I said no and she said oh well, that's good I'm going to and um, and then I got a phone call from someone in the engineers union who said um, are you going to nominate and I said no and he said well yes you are and this is the first of many phone calls that you're going to be receiving that will persuade you hopefully by the end of the day that you will so I ended up uh, nominating and there were about nine or ten candidates. The interesting thing is that today is actually the anniversary of my selection uh, 27 years ago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I know it's today is because it's Women's Suffrage Day. The selection meeting was actually on the 18th of September but by the time the voting was finished 
behind closed doors by the selection panel, it was the early hours of the morning. So I was selected to run for Christchurch Central for the Labour Party on the 19th of September, 1990. Wow, so we're on an anniversary day. We're on an That's anniversary special. day. I that didn't is even really know. special. <laughs> My research didn't tell me that. Ah, well, it's, it's Women's Suffrage Day today. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so at that time that, that you are entering politics, what were your sort of dreams or ambitions? I'd known politicians, obviously, through, mm. through the uh, working for the union and, and being involved that way. Mm. So I knew all the Christchurch uh, members of parliament. I mean, the Labour ones generally yeah. uh, in different parts of the country. I, the only conference of the Labour Party that I'd been to was the one in Christchurch in the early 80s. I, I can't remember what year it exactly was at the Christchurch Town Hall. I went along to that as an observer, but I wasn't really involved in the Labour Party. I was more involved in the industrial mm. wing. So mm. you'd find me at Federation of Labour conferences and NZCTU conferences yeah. more than a Labour Party one. So that 27 years ago when that when that happened, mm. what were your... I guess your ambitions or what did you think oh. you would bring to the table? Okay, what, what, what I was really standing for, and I said it in my, uh, in my maiden speech, that I was really focused on what I understood that the uh, government, well, the, the National Party had planned. I mean, it looked like they were going to win. It, I mean, it, we knew that they were going to win. And I knew that we were being elected into opposition, but we, we needed to fight the changes that they were going to make to mm. industrial relations legislation. And actually, they had done a lot of work behind the scenes, and they introduced a, a, a piece of legislation, the Employment Contracts Bill, um, before Christmas that year in 1990, and it, and it has been devastating in a whole lot of different ways to what was a reasonably uh, cohesive industrial relations system that actually provided a reasonable amount of equity across the across the workforce. Mm. So that was the area that you really wanted yeah, to concentrate that's, that's on. that's where I was focused on. But yeah. also low-paid women workers were very much my um, area of focus. I was a great believer in employment equity, um, you know, mm. pay equity, and equal employment opportunities. Uh, and But that was also... And I also had a, um, you know, sort of a passion for human rights. And, you know, mm. I, when I was a first involved in the union I was um, speaking on rallies on homosexual law reform and mm -hmm. our union actually took a position on that which I think was uh, very forward uh, looking we um, supported uh, the moves to um, you know to um, to support homosexual law reform on the basis that we had a number of people both um, employers and again it's that industry approach employers and employees who were discriminated against because of that legislation and we were opposed to the legislation remaining in place. So, um, and that, 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 was, that was one of the first speeches that I remember giving in Cathedral Square on behalf of the union. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And obviously there's many ways that we could go with this in terms of your time in Parliament, mm. but I just want to ask, looking back, you know, if you could give yourself advice 27 years ago, what are some of the things that you wish that you'd known maybe that you would tell your younger self? Is there anything that stands out? Um, gosh, that's, that's actually quite a hard question. It's, I think, you know, I've, I've probably learnt so much since the earthquakes, mm. but it's interesting that when I, 
when I really started studying post-disaster uh, environments and 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 recovery and uh, you know and um, rebuilding after a disaster, so many of the lessons that one learns when you look at it from the perspective of you know decision making, whether you're in central or local government. It always involves the people. It's always about community. And that was the very first set of lessons that I was learning Mm. when I first went into Parliament because it was only a year after the, uh, what was it called, the Ottawa Charter, which is the sort of health promotion concept which puts community at the heart of uh, health promotion initiatives, which is the population-based approach. And without community at the heart, you don't get the results that you're seeking to achieve. And it's exactly the same in post-disaster mm. environments. So it's, I probably didn't know back then that what I was learning and understanding back then was mm. incredibly relevant to something I was going to have to mm. confront. So that word community is the thing. Oh, absolutely. That, yeah. Absolutely. If you don't take the community with you, if you don't empower the community so that they themselves are actually contributing and you know, playing a very direct role in their own recovery, then mm. you don't achieve what you can achieve if you bring them with you and engage them fully in the process. Mm. Well, that kind of brings us up to present day, doesn't mm. it? There's so many areas that we could go <laughs> in terms of your time in Parliament, but I'm just looking at the um, where we are today, and there's a recovery going out. We're looking out where we're sitting here, and there's buildings rising and things. I'm particularly interested in the word resilience mm. and what that sort of what that's meant in in the context of Christchurch. Well. Christchurch people, as a general rule, hate the word resilience. Mm-hmm. And the reason is is that people, well-meaning people, keep coming into the city and saying, oh, my gosh, you're all so resilient. Aren't you amazing? And what they really mean is is that you're, you're very stoic, that you've had to go through great hardship, and it's a, it's a genuine attempt to express a sense of admiration uh, for what people have been able to achieve. But it... But it also diminishes what resilience actually means, because for me, resilience is a journey, not a destination. Mm-hmm. And resilience is a way of <laughs> working and thinking and operating. And it's a very um, collective word. I mean, we can we can focus on individual resilience, and you know, often people do become more resilient. But usually, it's in the face of having experienced something mm-hmm. that drags them back, and it's the ability to come. Um, back to the fore and take control of your life and make um, sort of powerful decisions about your own future that actually creates a more resilient individual. Mm. If you take that meaning and apply it to communities, then it's a, it's a lot more than this sort of bounce-back mentality, you know, after you've been knocked down. It's actually about quite fundamental ability or, or a quite fundamental ability for a community as a whole to adapt to an entirely new set of circumstances and to take charge as a community. And I think after the earthquakes, a lot of communities felt actually quite proud of what they were able to achieve without any assistance from outside. And sometimes I think we've forgotten that, you know, that actually it is down to us collectively as communities in terms of a number of things that we can do for ourselves but we've almost got to the point where we expect 
the council to do things for us. We expect central government to do things for us. You know, I always use the example of the overflowing rubbish tin, you know, with the rubbish all, all on the ground and somebody taking a picture of it and putting it on Facebook and saying, damn council, they've not done anything. Look at them, they've let this rubbish tin overflow. And I'm going, how come none of the 350 comments that follow actually say, who are these people that keep putting rubbish in a bin that's already full? Mm. Why would you come into our community and do that? Or is that somebody in our community that's doing it to us? Why wouldn't you why would you not pick them up after you've taken the photo? Mm. Why would you leave it like that? Do you really live in a community where we don't do anything for ourselves anymore? Mm. You know, and so I, I mean I just I'm not saying that that there's anything wrong with the individuals. I'm not cr- criticising people. I'm just saying that have we lost something about that sense of pride that we used to take in cleaning up ourselves? I mean, as a kid growing up, we often went on highway cleanups. Uh, we often went on, um, and sometimes they were church groups, sometimes they were girl guides, sometimes they were different things. but. As a kid, I grew up in an environment where you would not leave rubbish on the ground. You would pick it up. And that's the way we were. But that seems to have been lost in the idea that we pay rates. And that means that's somebody else. It's somebody else's job. And for me, resilience is about seeing it not as somebody else's job, but as seeing it as our collective responsibility to look out for each other. That's great. I mean, one of the themes that's coming through when I interview people, particularly people for this podcast, has been that idea of we're each responsible for what we can do Mm. rather than just abdicating and, well, that's someone else's responsibility. And so the the episode before this one, I talked with Neta Egos, and she has a great phrase where she says, just because you can't change everything doesn't mean you should do nothing. Mm. And that concept that at least take some small action. And it's really heartening to hear that theme coming through. I had the great privilege, and it is a privilege, to go to Antarctica. Mm. And I always tell people that Antarctic New Zealand runs the best health and safety program in the world. I just say the world because I can, but I don't really know if it is, whether others do this as well. But from the minute you step off that plane, and it is breathtaking, both literally and figuratively, it does take your breath away. It's the most amazing place. But from the minute you step down, you know that you are responsible for yourself. Mm -hmm. You are responsible for everyone else that you're in contact with and you are responsible for the environment. And that sense of responsibility is reinforced every second that you're there. Mm. And it never, it never leaves you. You know, you, you, are, you, put, back, you put back the environment the way mm. it was. So mm. if you cut some ice out and make a wee seat to sit on, you put it back the way that it was when you arrived. You don't leave anything behind. And for me, if we treated our environment that we lived in here in Christchurch the same way, what a great place it would be. But what a great sense of shared responsibility we would have as a, as a community. Mm. Yeah, that's a great thought. And just thinking about purpose, because that's 
one of the things that we talk a lot about on, on this mm. podcast. What, um, what does that word mean for you and what form does that take now for you? For me, it's about building communities of purpose, you mm. know. So for me, it's not so much my personal driver from an individual point of view. It's about a, a collective driver. What is our sense of purpose as a community? What's the point of living in a community if you don't have a shared sense of purpose? And, you know, I, the, 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 I know that others will have, have experienced this too, but a lot of us got to know our neighbours a lot better after the earthquakes. And, you know, and I, I mean, I've moved, my house was red zoned uh, after the earthquake, so I've moved into a new neighbourhood, but I know my neighbours. And that has, that was very much the case when I was growing up. We knew all of our neighbours when I was growing up. I lo- know a lot more of my neighbours post earthquake than I did before the earthquakes. So you can live in a street in Christchurch and know nobody that lives in the same street or you can know quite a few people, or you can know a lot of people, but it does require you to mm. reach out. That sense of purpose is about, it, it, it's about, yeah, it's about the why. What, why, why we want to live here, what, um, what are the values of uh, this city, and uh, you know, I mean, I'm one that hasn't left. <laughs> so, but I often talk to people who've come back, and and that sense of this is a great place to um, you know raise a family. It's a great place to you know sort of be involved in the in the great outdoors. It's got a lot of the attributes of a big city, um, but actually all the benefits of quite a small city, mm. uh, and that enables you perhaps it's big enough to do things that you'd expect to do in a bigger city, but um, yeah, it's not so big that you get lost in the crowd. Mm. So I don't know. Purpose for me is is more of a collective purpose rather than an individual one. Mm. No, that's good. And just before we um, started this interview, I think you were doing some other interviews or something with TV crews, and after this, you're going to be going off to other meetings, and then you're going to Adelaide tomorrow. It's a very busy schedule. How do you keep up the energy or the momentum <laughs> <laughs> for for doing this for a long time? Because, like for me, it, it, you know, I'll have busy periods, and then it will kind of not be so busy anymore. But I get the sense that in a in a role like yours, there's constant demands. So I'm just curious what we can learn from you and. and <laughs> I don't think I'm a very good example to learn from. I mean, I always joke in the lift. People say, um, have a good weekend. And I go, weekend? Now, what, what, what is a weekend? Does, does a week actually end? Uh, but, it, you know, that's my joke. Um, I, the thing is, is that I, I wouldn't be the mayor of Christchurch if it hadn't been for the earthquakes. So I was reasonably you know, sort of um, happy with remaining uh, in the central government side of things. But uh, I really felt that Christchurch needed something that I thought that I could offer, and it's a you know, different style of leadership from the one that is often required after, after the events actually occurred. So w- w- when something you know, bad happens, uh, like the earthquakes, 
um, you probably need somebody that's that's able to really provide that positive reassurance and that you know sort of almost I'm in charge you can rely on me sort of kind of thing and I, I'm not that kind of person I'm more the look we're going to have to really work this out together there's a quite a long journey um, that we're on and we're going to have to work together and try and find solutions and I do look for compromises I'm, a, I'm only one vote around the table so mm. I always have to look for compromises if we can't all agree on a particular course of action. You, you can't afford not to to keep turning up. You know, you've got you've got to you've got to get out of bed in the morning, and you've got to push yourself. So, I mean, it, it is it is very challenging. I mean, the the true story of Christchurch in that post disaster environment hasn't really been told yet because you know central government has taken way too strong a role in this environment. They should have developed a much more collaborative approach with the local authority as it was back then. They certainly shouldn't have signed a cost-sharing agreement four months out from a from an election, so I shouldn't have had to have come in as the mayor and taken on other people's sense of what the city could uh, be. And, and I think that, you know, that when, when the, 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 the truth be told, there will be elements of shortcomings that we will learn from and we won't repeat uh, because they're not the best model for recovery. But I am determined that that this city will be the best that it can be under the circumstances. And, you know, which means that on one side I've got a degree of realism, but on the other side I've still got this sense of idealism and what this city could mean in a 21st century that's facing an incredibly uncertain world ahead of us. We've got climate change, we've got a number of challenges, but we've also still got people here in Christchurch that haven't had their insurance settled. Mm -hmm. So from everything from the sort of kind of micro individual level right up to being a global leader in terms of things like climate change and how we address that uh, from a city perspective you know I want it all <laughs> yep <laughs> I get that sense and and you have a long-term vision for Christchurch don't you because you grew up here this is your home yeah um, but it could look it could be amazing you know in the sense that people could come here in years to come and say wow this was a city that took real advantage of the disaster that it's been through and I, I keep quoting Ram Emanuel who's the um uh, mayor of Chicago, mm. but he was the chief of staff in the US administration, and he said that you should never let a serious crisis go to waste. Right. And that's because it's an opportunity to do things you think you couldn't do before. And that's uh, my, my mojo, as it were. This is an opportunity to do things that you think you couldn't do before. It is a time where our city can really you know, sort of provide an uplift for those that are involved in social enterprise, for those that are involved in entrepreneurship, for those that just want to give things a go. This is a place where we can literally try anything because we've been through this experience and it's kind of like, well, why not? Mm. And so we're, we're a city that, that has an incredible opportunity to help lead the way. So we're trialling autonomous uh, vehicle shuttle mm. out at the airport. 
Uh, we've just launched the very first autonomous vehicle that's ever been created in New Zealand, you know, a different technology, world first, you know. So we're doing all of these things and, yeah, that's what Christchurch is and could be. But at the same time, we're the garden city of New Zealand. We always have been, we always will be. But what a garden city means in the 21st century, now that's a different story as well. It's about sustainability, it's about food resilience, it's about clean rivers, it's about you know uh, environmental protection. So this city could have it all, literally. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been really great to talk with you, and I just really enjoy hearing your story just right back from the beginning, you know, a childhood um, playing with your, your siblings and then getting into law, getting into the union movement, going to parliament, and now being placed where you are. Yeah, it's, it's nice to be able to dive a bit deeper maybe than, uh, you know, a traditional interview. So thank you very much for your time and coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Leanne and talking about purpose with her, and in particular in the context of Christchurch and the rebuild. The next episode is going to be with Shanna, who's just turned 10 years old. So we're going to get her perspective on life, what it's like to be a kid, what she thinks that adults can learn from kids. Here's an extract from that interview. If you're working 24 hours, seven days a week, nonstop, Mm. and you don't see your kid at all, Maybe you should just give them some more time, like more of your time. Mm. And yeah, just because sometimes that's really like a pit. Mm. Yeah, it Mm. needs to be filled up with Mm. some soil. What do you mean that that not having enough time with the mum or dad is like having a big hole? Yeah, it's like having a hole in your heart and um, you can fill it up with some soil, like with um, your dad or with your mum or with your child, yeah. There was something really special about talking purpose with a child because I think they have insights that we as adults sometimes have lost. There's an easy way to make sure you won't miss that and future episodes of this podcast, and that is to hit subscribe. Also, don't forget that this is just one of a series of episodes, so you can listen to those earlier ones as well. And if you find the content helpful, then please consider sharing it. Until next time.